We read God's word this morning in Proverbs 23. We are going to read the entire chapter. Verses 29 through the end of the chapter are our text today. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. <clears throat> For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Remove not the old landmark, and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause with thee. Apply thine heart unto instruction, and thine ears to the words of knowledge. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long, for surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way, be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begat thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and sell it not, also wisdom, and instruction, and understanding." The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begetteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that, sh that bear thee shall rejoice. My son, give me thine heart, and let thine eyes observe my ways, for a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey and increaseth the transgressors among men. Now our text. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last, it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. 
Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. This far we read the word of God. Beloved saints in Christ, Satan sees to it that there are many, many dangers to the child of God who seeks to live aright in this world. But two dangers are held out before us in particular in this chapter and in our text, the danger of wine and the danger of women. These are two things in which the world says all true happiness is to be found. Wine and women. These are two things that characterizes the world's enjoyment of a weekend. Plenty of wine and enough time with plenty of women. And therefore, because it's the world telling us this is the essence of life, The Holy Spirit says to the church, no, that is the very definition of death, of the deadness, the depravedness of our nature manifesting itself that we think that in happiness, in wine and in women, there is happiness. But do we get the point? Do we understand that what the world holds out as being the key to happiness is in fact a great danger for us. I ask the question in the first place, not only because society surrounds us with its mentality, but because in the second place, the Dutch, the Europeans to speak more broadly, from whom we are descended have generally not had any qualms about using wine or beer, which the Bible calls strong drink, that made from grains, whereas wine is an intoxicating beverage made from fruits. The Europeans generally have had no qualms about using them even in copious amounts. And we do that, if not each and every one of us, Yet, so prevalent today, it's part of the wealth of our society, so prevalent today is intoxicating beverage, even when we don't over-drink, that one has to ask the question, are we taking the warning to heart? But in the second place, ask the question because there always has been And so today I don't doubt also a mentality among some that when I have my first wine, and I don't mean my first sip of wine, I mean when I got drunk for the first time, and when as a young man I had my first woman, and I don't mean I got married, I mean before marriage, I engaged in sexual intercourse which is forbidden me, that then I say now I've attained. Now I'm cool. Now I'm relevant. Now I'm with the times. And not only 
does the text cause young people to see the mentality is wrong, but again, it forces us all to examine a culture, a subculture, and ask, are we turning a blind eye? Are we ignoring a real problem? Are we condoning what the Holy Spirit doesn't? It's for those reasons that I bring the Word of God to you today, but to every congregation that I'm able to bring it as opportunity arises. For we are the children of God. We are those for whom the blood of Christ is shed. We are those in whom the Holy Spirit lives. Only are we showing it in how we live. The wise understand. It might be that the response of some to a sermon such as this morning's sermon will be, yeah, 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 but the wise understand. And the reason I emphasize that point is that that puts our text in the context of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is about wisdom. Proverbs is about realizing that there is a wisdom from above. It's not just a thing even. He is a man. Jesus Christ, Proverbs 8, is that wisdom from above. The only way of salvation. But He is a wisdom who fills us with wisdom. Who renews our understanding so that we too become wise. And throughout much of the book of Proverbs, wisdom and folly are contrasted. And the wise gets it. The fool doesn't. The fool says... Solomon had some extra time one day and he thought to write a bunch of contrasting statements, but they don't have relevance to my life. The wise understand. And as we come to our text this morning, may God give us the wisdom to see what is in Scripture the most graphic passage to set forth the folly and the sin of drunkenness. And may the Lord give us the wisdom that we need. I call your attention to the text under the theme, The Drunkard's Folly. We're going to emphasize in the first point that the text is speaking of the sin of drunkenness, one who is filled with wine. Secondly, we're going to set forth the folly, he is deceived by wine. And third, we're going to ask the question, now why does the Holy Spirit tell us this? And the answer is going to be, he is admonishing us to wisdom. The text is not speaking merely of the drinking of wine or alcoholic beverage. It does speak of one who drinks wine and seeks mixed wine. Mixed wine here being a wine that's mixed with honey perhaps and other spices and so can be considered the premium drink of the day. But the text is not merely speaking of one who drinks it within reason and in appropriate measure, the text is speaking of one who is drunk. And that's clear from a couple of considerations. In the first place, it's clear from verse 30, as it speaks of one who tarries long at the wine and who goes to seek mixed wine. It's not so much the object, the thing that they're drinking, it's the activity that is on the foreground here. And the activity is one who tarries long. Here's not the man who comes home from a 
hard day out under the sun, laboring in the cement or on a construction site, and says, a beer sounds good. He has his beer with his meal. He concludes the meal with devotions, as he ought. And then he is up to go about other activities of the evening. That's not the man described in the text. The man described in the text is a man who comes home having had such a hard day, he sits and has his beer, and then the next beer, and then the next beer, and then the next beer, he tarries long. There's nothing else to do tonight than drink. When he runs out of drink, he goes to seek. Now, of course, you and I would too. The cupboard runs bare, we go to the store. But we know where to go. This man is on a hunt. And he's on a hunt because not only will he drink in copious amounts, but he must have the best. There's a standard to which he adheres himself. So he's on a hunt for the best wine. And when he finds the best wine after a long search, then he buys that in quantity and that he will drink. The text is speaking of a drunkard. That first the verbs of verse 30, but secondly, the questions of verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? And the answer to those questions is not that man or woman who had a drink, but that man or woman who tarries long. The answer is the one who's drunk exhibits these characteristics. Woe and sorrow, the first two questions of verse 29, refer to a moaning and a groaning and a trouble that this person is exhibiting. Here's a person sitting with a glass, and he's talking. His mouth is extremely lubricated, and out comes many, many words. The words are not about a lovely life. They're not about a calm, peaceful confession of God's way with him or her. The words are an expression of all sorts of inner turmoil. Woe and sorrow, referring to moans and groans. Maybe then the, the form of the words and the emotion of the words, whereas just a little later, who hath babbling refers more to the content of the words, the anxiety that this person has is coming out in speech. And that's a point worth noting a moment because some people who give themselves over to alcohol are trying by that to address an anxiety, to calm an anxiety, but no, it's all pouring forth in words. Who hath contentions? The question there is, who's a brawler? Who's one who's going to be arguing with you verbally and quick to blows if need be if you will contradict him? We all can get frustrated when somebody doesn't agree with us, and many of us have a tendency to be impatient, but the one who is quick to blows in a heartbeat is one who is drunk. Who hath wounds without cause? Later on in the text, verse 35, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Who is it who has these broken bones? Who is it who has these bruises? And you ask them, how'd that happen? And they say, I don't know. Must have been somebody else. I don't remember when and how, but it must have been. Or, well, I fell. You fell. 
We all are capable of falling. You fall a lot. What's going on? Who hath these things? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. And finally, as far as the questions of verse 29, who hath redness of eyes? On whose face, and especially looking at whose eyes, can you see that the problem is deep and long-standing? And the answer is not one who has a drink within limit on occasion, but they that tarry long. So I've demonstrated that the text is speaking of one who comes repeatedly under the influence of alcohol and really is in bondage to it. And the next thing we have to do in this first point is demonstrate that this is sin. The text doesn't say it in so many words. It points it out as folly, and that's a clue because everything that Proverbs points out as folly is not just mere earthly folly. It's spiritual folly. It is sin. It is, in one way or another, the sin of not bringing honor and glory to God, but living for oneself. I'm not just speaking now of drunkenness. I'm speaking of all the foolishness set forth in the book of Proverbs. But then that's true of the sin of drunkenness too. Living for oneself. But let's see even more from a New Testament passage that drunkenness is inherently sin. And I'm not just talking about drunkards, those who get drunk repeatedly, but I'm talking, young person, about that very first time that you think was the key to your arriving, to your becoming a somebody. That was sin. What does Ephesians 5, verse 18 say? And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, spiritual excess, spiritual openness uh, to sin, but be filled with the Spirit. Now it's interesting that the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18 compares and contrasts himself to wine. If you would think of something that under having a good theology of the Holy Spirit, think of something that's to hit the contrast of the Holy Spirit. Would you think of wine? He does. He does immediately. And he can think of wine because there's an inherent comparison between wine and the Holy Spirit and an essential contrast. And the essential contrast only helps prove the point because of the fundamental comparison. The fundamental comparison between the Holy Spirit and wine are that they both influence. That is, they both take us over. They both, they both so control us that we live and act as out of their influence. They have that in common. The contrast, though, is stark. Because the Holy Spirit is Jehovah God in the third person. The Holy Spirit is God as He comes in and, re and fills us, brings the life of Jesus Christ to live in us, transforms and changes us so that whereas by nature depraved, we give ourselves over to all sorts of sins and serve ourselves, the Holy Spirit says, no, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. You will live unto God. And one who is filled with the Spirit 
loves the law of God, obeys the law of God, delights in the law of God, and readily lives in godly, antithetical life. Whereas wine is not God, or the power of God. It's an earthly substance. When one comes under the power of that earthly substance, thoughts of God, serving God, reminders that we've been renewed by the grace of God are farthest from our mind, but seeking self is the goal. The Holy Spirit influences and actuates and empowers the new man in Christ. Wine, the old man from Adam. And that's why it's inherently sin to be drunk. Because the child of God is bringing himself or herself under the power and influence of a substance which will not promote godliness, but will detract from it. That's the point of Ephesians 5.18. Now let me make one thing clear. So there's no doubt about this. In my explanation, there's one thing I did not say. And what I did not say is that that child of God, for whom Christ died and whom the Spirit lives, who does become drunk, has lost the Spirit. I didn't say he or she lost the Spirit. I didn't say the Spirit withdraws from him or her. The Spirit works in him or her to see the grievous consequences, to bring him or her to repentance. But there's a difference between being regenerated by the Spirit and being filled with. Go read the New Testament and find how many people it speaks of being filled with the Spirit. And you'll see that they are always exemplary men and women who live to the praise, honor, and glory of God. So very simply, why is drunkenness sin? Because it feeds the old man. And the text is going to demonstrate that in concrete ways. I'll come to that in the second point. Why is a use, a limited use in some instances by some people who recognize that this would be a great trouble for them, uh, absolute abstaining from the use of wine? Why is that wisdom? Because it enables them to live to the praise and glory of God. Therefore, your Lord Jesus Christ was never drunk. Now, on the one hand, there's a historical fact there, and on the second, there's a saving implication, a gospel truth. He was never drunk. As to the fact, he was accused of it. The scribes and the Pharisees, seeing him eat with publicans and sinners, said, how do you explain that in a man? Then he'll go eat with those kind of people. There's a point they get that we sing in 328, the company we keep does affect the way we act. But although they understood the point, they misapplied it. Because the Lord Jesus Christ in eating with publicans and sinners was not becoming drunk and showing himself to be a glutton. And he said that to them. He wasn't drunk, but he was showing that God has a grace and mercy even for the lowest of the low, a willingness and a desire to bring 
to saving faith in him and turn from sin those who have stooped so low. There's another saving truth here that your Lord was never drunk. He was perfectly righteous. And there could be no salvation for you and for me if he were not. If just once he said, I've lived for the glory of God my whole life. 30 years, I'm allowed five minutes for me. You and I would not be saved. Because it is his perfect righteousness, his unswerving allegiance to the law of God, that enables him to go to the death of the cross representing you and me and earn for us the glorious salvation that he has earned. Be wise like your Lord is. The way of application now, having set forth the, the basic underlying truth of the text, by way of application, I want to show that the text is applying to each one of us today in one way or another there's an obvious application, that's to him or her of whatever age in the congregation struggles or maybe doesn't struggle giving in too easily to the sin of drunkenness. I don't know of anyone in the congregation like that, which is my way of saying I don't have an agenda with regard to any individual here in this congregation today. But, Although I don't know of any such individual, I conceive of the possibility, the probability, wherever I preach the sermon, that there are number of them who are hearing. And I say, first of all, the sermon is for you, brother and sister. Hear it and take it to heart and learn wisdom. But if 90% of us say, well, then it's not for me, I say, oh, yes, it is. Because in the second place, the application of the text in the basic principle of the text is broader than just to the use of alcoholic beverage. The principle is that we not come under the influence of any substance, any earthly creature which draws us away from service to God. There are other things than wine and beer that can do that. Drugs can do that. The text applies to our use of drugs. It applies to our use of prescription drugs when not used as prescribed. It applies to our use of street drugs and hard drugs. And young people, it applies to our use of marijuana. Just a couple years ago, the state of Michigan legalized marijuana. And so young people growing up today will, the first group of young people in the history of the United States anyway, be the sort who say, but it's always been legal. What's wrong with it? But you understand that there's a basic difference, don't you, young people, between the state saying it's legal because we've got bigger problems than dealing with so many people who are using this drug will simply make it legal. 
There's a difference between the state saying it's legal and God saying it's wise. God does not say it's wise. God says nowhere in the Bible does he address the use of marijuana, but he says in principle in our text and others that refer to the intoxicating power of wine and beer by implication those other things that affect your mind are also off limits. And the young people and the older people must understand this. Now thirdly, by way of application, if there's somebody here in the text, in the congregation who says it still doesn't apply to me, listen to this. In its broadest application, this text is about a person who has a besetting sin and won't acknowledge it is a sin or will not deal with that sin as earnestly, zealously, and in a godly way as he or she ought. And that's every one of us. There is an application of the text to us all. For I am prone with regard to my own besetting sins to say, yeah, yeah, but they're kind of small. That was my evaluation, not God's. But that's part of what we do. It's a kind of small. They're not as big as hers and his. And of course, as soon as I can point my finger at somebody else who has a bigger problem, then you might look at him or her too and take your eyes off me. But the Holy Spirit does not take his eyes off me. There's a principle in the text regarding the besetting sin of each one of us. Do we love it and think it's our little escape? So having set forth in the first point that the text speaks of the sin of drunkenness and it's a matter that applies broadly to all of us, let's come in the second point to see that the drunkard is deceived by wine. And here too there will be three sub-points. What we need to do first is see five things that the text is speaking. I'm going to start at verse 31 and move through each of the following verses one by one. Five things in the text that it is saying about the sin of drunkenness and its folly. And the first is that wine deceives. That's verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Here it's not the deceptiveness of wine, but it's the earthly properties of the wine that lead to its deception that's on the foreground. The wine is red, and the wine gives his color in the cup. There are phrases that will be difficult to get a good handle on in an English translation. Our King James did a fine job. I'm not in the least criticizing here, but what really is the idea? It probably is this. There's something more about the wine, maybe the way the light hits it, because literally we read of its eyes sparkling. Maybe it was a bubbly wine. Not all wine is bubbly, but maybe in those days it was. So there was something in addition to the color that made the wine look attractive. Not only the look of the wine, but also the taste. That's the last phrase. When it moveth itself aright, it goes smoothly and so think of the taste and how it goes down smoothly. So I look at a bottle of wine and I say it looks delicious. I've tasted it before. 
It's going to taste delicious. And this is part of wine deceiving. Because it does look delicious, and it will taste delicious, but that's not the same as saying that the whole bottle at once will be good for me. Now go back to the Garden of Eden, because there's a basic principle going on here that went on there. And that is Satan saying to Eve, do you see what it looks like? And don't you understand what it must taste like? How can God say to you, don't eat, when it looks and will taste so good? He is deceiving her by drawing attention to its earthly properties. Wine's earthly properties deceive. Second, what is the deception of wine? Verse 32, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So wine is personified. It bites and it stings. And of course it doesn't, but the point is it has a real effect. It doesn't physically leave a bite mark. But everything described in verse 29 is the fruit of being bitten. I have a little wine, and it tasted good, and it looked delicious. And there's much of the bottle there yet, and it's saying to me, I look good still, and I will taste delicious still. So I have a little more. And the bottle says to me with now the two-thirds left in it, but if that first third in two drinks was good, then more will also be good. And so I have more, and at the last it stings me, which means... The very least, the bite of a serpent and the sting of an adder hurts. And this wine is hurting me, physically and spiritually. And at the most, it killed me. It was the occasion for my death physically. Or it is so destroying my soul, my soul must have already been dead in the case of the unregenerate, but it is soul destroying my soul that I am, in a spiritual sense, living exhibition of what sin does. Now when that happens, you look at the bottle of wine and you say to the bottle of wine, you tricked me. It says you were tricked by that? You didn't understand the basic principle all along? A little is good, a little tastes good, a little looks good, but a little is all. Drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy oft infirmities, says Paul to Timothy. And again, the proverb elsewhere, a little wine makes a cheer, cheerful or a merry heart. But says that bottle, you really believed that if you drank the whole bottle, you'd be even more happy the problem is not that I bit you and I stung you. The problem is that you trusted me to start with. And there again, we can go back to the Garden of Eden. Realize that Satan is using deceptive tactics there to his advantage. And he'll ultimately say to Eve, when she's brought in bondage to sin now, and when the temporal curses and punishments of God come on her and Adam, Satan will say to Eve, You believed me? What are you? Crazy? Yes, we are. 
The third place, the text goes on to speak of the spiritual effect of that biting and stinging, that pain or death. When in verse 33 it says, Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. These are spiritual consequences. Beholding strange women can be a danger to each one of us, and there is a great danger. It is a great danger for men. Because we're past the days of having to go buy a magazine with a piece of paper covering the cover. And we're to the days of turning to our phones. It's not hard to behold strange women. Behold in the sense of more than objectively see, oh, there's a woman, but lust after her. And the text, still speaking of a man, doesn't ignore the fact that the same is true for women. It's not at all hard for a woman to say, oh, there's a man. And if if it isn't his strong muscles and handsome face that she sees in him and is attracted, she says, there's something about that man that will give me happiness. This man isn't doing it. That man will. And my point is, so this is a danger to all of us all the time. Why does the text say that the drunk person will behold strange women? And the answer is twofold. In the first place, because although you and I, when not drunk, are prone to this sin, we seek to guard against it. But one who is brought under the influence of alcohol has far lower, almost to zero, inhibitions. Give in to it. There it is. Enjoy it. In the second place, because here's the principle of Psalter 328 again, the company we keep affects the way we act. So to any one of us struggling with drunkenness or struggling with drug use, Are your friends doing it? Well, step number one in your recovery program is get new friends. There's more to the spiritual consequences. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. Here the Holy Spirit means to impress on us how really, how how fully We will give vent to the evil in our heart when we're under the influence. I have, when not under the influence, thought evil thoughts. Kind of thoughts that made me say, now where did that come from? I hate the thought, but I had the thought. It's a sinful thought. How could I... I don't mean I because I'm a minister or professor. How could I, as a regenerated child of God, think that? But I did. And I'm glad I didn't have a conversation bubble over my head where you could look at me and say, I see what that man is thinking. Now, you don't need a conversation bubble over your head if you're drunk. You'll tell the whole world what you're thinking. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. And what I've heard, members of the Church of Jesus Christ, while drunk, give vent to perverse things. They were blasphemies of God, of His Word, of His sacraments, 
and of Jesus Christ. And if a person, when drunk, comes sober, and the elders come visit that person and say to that person, this is what you said while drunk, then that person can't say to the elders, I didn't mean it. I would never have done that if I weren't drunk. This is the response of the elders. The only reason you wouldn't do it when not drunk is because you knew you'd get in trouble and you had the presence of mind to guard what you said. But what came out of your heart while under the influence was the real you. And you must repent. Your soul is in danger. In the fourth place, the text goes on to speak of physical consequences, and that's verse 34. Thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. The reference now to one who's nauseous. Think of the ship in the Atlantic Ocean, and it's a stormy day, so the ship itself is rocking, and the sailors on deck are getting dizzy and sick, but you're at the top of the mast, the lookout, and the the effect of the tossing of the ship is for you all the more exaggerated and you don't feel well. Well, drunkenness has that physical effect. It also causes us to lose judgment. I understand there might be more ways than just this to understand the first part of verse 34, but I understand the reference to lying down in the midst of the sea. Not to be somebody on a boat who says, I'm seasick, I need to lay down, but to be somebody who says, I'm tired. I don't want to go sleep. I don't want a soft bed. Look at the water. It looks like such a soft bed to lie in. And somebody misjudges. And that certainly is too an effect of drunkenness. It's a reason why the world says don't drink and drive. You will kill yourself or somebody else. Verse 35 goes on to speak of other effects of drunkenness. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. I already referred earlier to the wounds, but now it's the blaming someone else I want to emphasize. It is not me, says the drunkard, when he or she comes to his senses and is told by friends, by a spouse, by children, by others, you have a problem. No, I don't. It's all you. Well, that's classic. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake is the question now. When will I become sober? And you say, maybe there's hope here. The person wants to become sober. He sees that this is not healthy for him spiritually or physically. He or she wants, oh no, when will I awake? I, here's what I'm going to do when I am sober. I will seek it yet again. The process, maybe the end of the process left me feeling sick, but the process, I would do it all over again. And so what we have in verse 35, as the culmination of all the effects of drunkenness, is the spiritual hardness and the impenitence of the person who as much as admits, I am just seeking myself. 
You say to such a person when they're sober, but while you were drunk, not only did you say this, not only were you with that strange woman, you beat your wife and children. I did. I'm a nice man. I didn't mean to do that. You didn't mean to do that? You could have helped yourself from doing it by not coming under the influence of alcohol and you're saying, I will seek it yet again. Do you see why I said earlier that this is the most graphic text in the scriptures to address the sin? It lays out the description of the drunkard and the spiritual and physical effects so clearly and at length. And having set forth those five things, three big picture things about the text. That, that is the first. We'll start there. The Holy Spirit here is, as it were, setting forth this drunk man as a laughing stock. Not that sin is funny. And yet when you read about God laughing in Scripture, it's always the impenitent sinner who thinks he's in control of the world God laughs at because God is saying... You're not in control of the world. You're being prepared for destruction. I'm in control of the world. Well, take the warning to heart. Turn to God, not the bottle. The second place, the big picture view, is that the folly of which the text speaks is both bodily and spiritual. I said that already. The text made it plain. The world gets that the effects of drunkenness are bodily, physical, and psychological. And the world says, we have our programs. Come join a program. We'll help you. So child of God, you who have the Holy Spirit and a more full revelation, the full revelation of God, and then are wiser than the world. See that the effects are physical and emotional, psychological, and spiritual. And may the Lord use the word today to bring you to see your need for help. Third big picture point from the text. There's a word, shall. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. Thine heart shall utter perverse things. And even when the word shall is not used... There are statements made that are absolutes. At the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. And that answers the assertion of a young man who says, I can control it. I can have it to this limit, but I can control it. And the Holy Spirit says, that too is your folly can't control it. You are trying to disprove the universal reality of which the text is speaking. It shall have this effect. And that too is a warning to you and to me. So three words again of application to the conclude the second point. The first is two. That brother or sister or brothers and sisters of the congregation who if you don't recognize this really is your problem have had relatives and friends telling you this is 
your problem. The first word to you is, brother or sister, you're trying to escape reality, both in your use of alcohol, but also in your denying that it's a problem. And you can be blind as long as you will be blind. We cannot make you get help, but brother or sister, get help. And by that I mean, it's Sunday morning, not quite 11 o'clock. You can, before the day is out, say to your relatives, I really have a problem. You can, before the day is out, call an elder and say, I will need help to deal with this problem. And you can, if not today, tomorrow, taking the day off work if you need to, call some agency or institution that will help you and make arrangements to get help. But if by Tuesday you haven't, that's the equivalent of saying, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Get help today. Secondly, are we guarding against this in our families? The question at the moment is not how much is in your wine cooler. That will be more for some and less for others and is not inherently a problem. It might be, but it's not inherently question is, when it's on your table, do you say to your children, one is enough? Now, it might be that it takes five for you to become drunk. That might be, for some that is, for some far less. So when you say to your children, one is enough, your point isn't that two will be that tipping point that you make cross over. The point is that the child of God as he lives out of the power of the new man says, I'm not going to have four. If five is one too many, then I'm not going to stop at four. I am going to come so far from coming under the power of something other than the Holy Spirit that I will not have more than one. Maybe two. Maybe two, if you're being honest with yourself. But there's a pre-set limit. Now that's an indication of wisdom on the part of a child of God. The third point of application now is, regardless of what our besetting sin is, do we say, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Or will this sermon also work in you and in me to understand that we must bring to God in prayer the recognition of where we fall short again and again and what it is that leads us to fall short again and again and seek His not only grace of forgiveness, but also the power of His Spirit to fight sin. In the third place, why does the Holy Spirit teach us this? He admonishes us to wisdom. And the admonition in the text is 
found explicitly, it's not always in all of the Proverbs, it's found explicitly in verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is read. And it's phrased negatively as is much of the law of God. The Holy Spirit saying, I know this is a danger. I know you're going to sometimes, so do not. And this is another case where the Holy Spirit says, do not. That Satan says, God said don't. He's jealous. There's something you could experience. He doesn't want you to experience because you're going to be more like him. Don't listen to Satan there. This is another instance where God says, Thou shalt not, because He knows to what it will lead, and He seeks our sanctification. The admonition is negative, but implied is a positive. Be wise. And now to drive home the positive, I'm going to refer you to a different proverb. And that's Proverbs 9, verse 5. It was Proverbs 8, remember, that spoke of Jesus Christ being wisdom. And the early part of verse of chapter 9 speak of this wisdom, Jesus Christ speaking. And this Jesus Christ, this wisdom, says to the church of Jesus Christ, to him who is simple, to him that lacks understanding, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. And Christ is saying here, there's a wine I have. That's what you want. Now, he's using the term in Proverbs 9 figuratively, whereas in chapter 23 it's used literally. What is this bread that Christ prepares and this wine that he's mingled? It, of course, refers to his body and blood, shed and broken on the cross of Jesus Christ, but even more it refers to the spiritual feast, the great joys, that we have in Him. And what Jesus Christ is saying in Proverbs 9, positively, and in Proverbs 23, negatively, don't do that, but do that, is really the same thing. You are looking for joy. Don't look to earthly things, but look to Christ. And when you and I do that, instead of opening a bottle, we'll turn to God. And instead of opening a can, we'll open the Scriptures. When you and I do that, we're going to find that although there's anxiety, oh, is there anxiety in our souls and hearts, that the bottle, that is, wine and beer, will not really take away. There is a word for in the Gospel. And it might not be that that anxiety is all taken away in a moment because we turn to the Bible, but we're given the strength to endure it to the glory of God. There's a blessedness for the soul. Instead of being discouraged all the more, inventing all my trouble and being ready to fight, there is a peace that the gospel works. Instead of looking at strange women, I behold the body of Jesus Christ, not just that which He shed on the cross, but the spiritual body that He gathers and says, those are my brothers and sisters in Christ, my companions in this walk of life. Instead of uttering perverse things, one who feasts at the table of the Lord, and I mean of the spiritual goodness that the Lord earns for us by His death on the cross, beholds 
the bride of Christ and sings the praises of Jehovah instead of tearing long at the wine. Such one tarries long in devotion with God and in church with the church of Jesus Christ and says, I've learned that in all the trials and troubles of my life, no earthly substance will help me ultimately, but the gospel will always address my basic need and give me the power to live to the praise of God. The ungodly seek wine and wisdom. Sorry, wine and women. The wise do not. Do you get it? Amen. Heavenly Father, may the Holy Spirit use this word for the edification of our souls and the guarding against a real danger in each one of us, man or woman, young or old. The first part of a genuine repentance is acknowledging sin and finding forgiveness in Christ, so declare to us that that wine that Christ mingled is mingled for us to drink. And then give us to live a new and godly life for Christ's sake. Amen.